Well, happy Dad's Day to all of you fathers. Um, I, I do know, some of you already know, uh, let's go ahead and put our hands together and celebrate dads being here today. I know that... Uh, I know that there's some people in our church that are dads who have lost their sons or their daughters, and there's also some sons and daughters in our room today who have lost their dad. And today, I know it's going to be a very hard day for you. It's a day of grief for many of you. I want you to know that we spent time this morning praying specifically for you, and we really did do that this morning. Um, and I hope that you'll fear that, feel the nearness of God um, for, to you today. Uh, but you know, one of the statistics that I read this week is that Father's Day is the lowest attended Sunday of the year. Um, in all actuality, July 4th was the lowest attended Sunday, but now Father's Day is now less attended um, than even July 4th. Um, so, the reason I wanted you to put your hands together and celebrate your dad's having you here today is because I do think it says a lot about your dad that he's prioritized this in his life. And before anybody that's watching online feels guilty, the fact that your dad gathered you together and you're watching online today says a lot about him too. So make sure you hug his neck and uh, you tell him thank you for prioritizing the things of the kingdom above things of the world. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 15. You'll remember two weeks ago, we started a new series that we're calling The Best Summer Yet, okay? And the very first week was started by Pastor Matt McKinney. Pastor Matt talked about what it looks like for you and I to walk in rhythm with God. And we said, if this is going to be our best summer yet, then it's going to require me and you being, uh, be, me, me and you making, a, a, I guess, an ambition of our life where we develop patterns or develop rhythms where we walk with God. And then last week, we kind of picked up where Matt left off, and we talked about last week the importance of developing a rhythm of praise in our life. And we said last week that we have more reason than anyone in the world to shout triumphantly, victoriously, because of the work that Jesus Christ has done in our place. And today, we're actually going to continue that trend. We're not going to be talking about developing a rhythm of praise in our life, but today we're going to be talking about developing a rhythm of worship. Now again, when I talk about worship, I'm not talking about what we just did through song, okay? That is an aspect of worship. That's one way that we worship. But one thing we say a lot around here is that not only uh, do we worship here on Sunday mornings through song, but we are created, we're designed by God to be worshipers. So you and I, we worship without ceasing. Everywhere we go, every minute of the day, we are worshiping. The issue for us becomes what or whom is the object of our worship. Jesus, God, designed us to be worshipers of him. But the world competes for that worship. So oftentimes in our lives, we, we make things of the world more important than him, and we become worshipers of it rather than him himself. So what we're doing today, this is what we have cooking, this is what we have on the table, is this. Having your best summer yet will depend on your willingness to worship God with an undivided heart. Let me say that again. Having your best summer yet, if you want this to be the best summer that you've ever had, that will depend on your willingness of worshiping God with an undivided heart. What do I mean by that? By an undivided heart, I mean that you worship God in an authentic way. Where your heart's not divided between God and anyone or anything else where he is the one who sits on the throne of your life. It's an undivided heart. It's authentic worship. It's when we worship God 
with both our lips and we worship God with our lives. So that's what we're chasing after today. What we're chasing after this morning is how do we become men and women, boys and girls, who display authentic worship in our lives. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 15. That's the first gospel of the New Testament for some of you who are still trying to find it. But before we get started and read these two verses that we have today, verses 8 and 9, I want to set the stage, I want to set the context for what's actually going on here in Matthew chapter 15. When you come to Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. He's offering a stern rebuke to them. The Pharisees, they're a group of people who are well-versed in the Scriptures. In fact, they set their lives on being zealous about following every single letter of the law. This is why you and I refer to the Pharisees as a very legalistic bunch of people, because they stuck to every letter of the law and they lived their lives by that. So on the surface, you might be thinking, well, that sounds good. I mean, if anybody can devote themselves to Scripture in that way, that should be a good thing. But this can also become a, a bit problematic. See, the problem with the Pharisees is they held everyone else to a standard that they weren't able to live by. Yet they thought they lived by that standard, but they didn't actually live up to the standard that they were asking everyone else to live up to. So the problem with the Pharisees is that they are such keepers of the law that they deceive themselves to believe that they have become righteous. I mean, you literally see them say that in Scripture, that they think that they are righteous because they heed and obey every single letter of the law. And then what you also see in the Pharisees is oftentimes when they engage conversation with Jesus, you see the Pharisees rebuking Jesus, the very Son of God. But here in Matthew chapter 15, the tables are turned. Jesus is actually rebuking the Pharisees. In fact, he refers to them by the word hypocrites. You know what a hypocrite is. I don't need to explain that much today. But he doesn't only do this here. He does it in other places of Scripture too. Why is he referring to them in this way? Because again, they have made worship more about what they were doing for God and less about what God through Jesus has already done for them. And worship was never intended to be that way. It wasn't intended about who I am and what I get out of it or, or even where I'm at and what I've done. It always has to do with who Jesus is, who God is, and what he has done in my place. So that brings us now to Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. Now when we read these two verses together, just know that these two verses did not originate in the Gospel of Matthew. These two verses actually come from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. He's attacking the issue of their heart, and he's saying this to them. This is what he says. Look at verse 8. Matthew chapter 15, verse 8. It says this. This people, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now I want to read this, these two verses again, okay? But when I read them this time, consider the gravity Consider the weight that, that are, that's coming out of Jesus' mouth as he says these words. Listen, this people, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He's saying they are saying all the right thing, meanwhile their heart's nowhere near me. And then he says this in verse 9, in vain do they worship me. So you and I can conclude from that that there is a way to worship God in vain. 
And I'm not talking about just coming in here and singing songs and worshiping God in vain. I'm talking about by the way that we merely live our lives, we can worship God in vain. And it says, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. I want you to pay attention to what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying here, not only to them, but he's also saying this to us, is this. It is possible for me, and it is possible for you to honor God with our lips while simultaneously having hearts that are far from him. It's possible, man, it's possible, woman, for you to come here today and to be worshiping and declaring the worth of God to him, while meanwhile your heart is so far away from him. The the Bible says, Jesus says, this worship is worship in vain. When we offer praises to God with our lips, And our lives are unmatched. They don't match what our lips are saying. He's saying that that is vain worship. In other words, that's worthless worship. What does that actually mean? It means that the worship that you are giving is hollow. It means the worship that you're giving is abortive. It means the worship that you're giving is ineffective. It's pointless worship. So my question on the table today for you, and I don't want you to answer this out loud, just want you to answer this in the privacy of your own heart. Think about it. Have you come here today, and are you guilty of worthless worship? If we were to study the pattern of your life over the past week, would you say that you were guilty of worthless worship? I mean, as we sang songs this morning declaring back to God the greatness of God, can you honestly say that you are truly declaring back to him the great worth that he deserves? Or are you guilty of empty, meaningless praise? So that's where I'm headed today. My goal today is to help you develop a healthy rhythm of of meaningful, authentic Worship. I want your lives on Monday to Saturday to match your lips and that, what, 25-minute segment of our service on Sunday morning. So in order to get there, there's two things I think you and I need to know about authentic worship, okay? Two things I think you and I need to know about authentic worship. The first one is this. Authentic worship requires a proper view of God. If you and I are going to worship Jesus authentically, it requires that we see God for who he really is and we know what he has done in our place. I love how these two verses do this. They have two parallel statements in verse 8 and verse 9. In verse 8 it says, this people, they honor me. And then in verse 9 it says, they worship me. That's a parallel statement saying the same thing two different ways. What Jesus is saying is those who honor God are those who worship God. He's saying and he's showing that the essence of worship is in the act of honoring who God is and honoring what God has done. So the question is, is if the essence of worship is the act of honoring God, then how do you and I honor God? I mean, how do we do that in our own individual lives? The first way that we should do this is honoring God is ascribing glory to him. You and I, we honor God when we ascribe glory to him. Now, we ascribe glory to God through song. We, dis- we ascribe glory to God through prayer. We-, we ascribe glory to God in conversation with each other as we loathe on who he is. We-, we-, we ascribe glory to God in a plethora of different ways, but when we do this, we're honoring him. One person said it like this, honoring God means recognizing his honor. 
Well, duh, right? And then it goes further to say, well, feeling the worth of it, you recognize his honor, and then you feel the weight and the worth of that honor, and then you ascribe glory to where that honor is due. Many of you know this, that the word worship is derived from an old English word. And when you break down that word, it says worth and ship, right? That's what it says. So this is when you ascribe value and worth to someone or something. When you ascribe value or worth to that someone or something, you are worshiping it. So when you say you worship God, what you're saying is you ascribe glory and you ascribe value and you ascribe worth to him. And the way that you do that is through honor and through praise and through giving him glory. That's how we ascribe glory to him. I love how the psalmist does it in Psalm 96, okay? If you're wondering what a picture of this looks like, what does it actually look like to ascribe glory to God? Psalm 96, verses 6 through 8, do a phenomenal job of making it clear for us. It says this in verse 6, splendor and majesty are before him, and they are. Splendor and majesty are all around him, and it's his strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. You can hear how they're just loathing on who God is. They're bragging, and they're glorying, and they're honoring who God is here. Verse 7, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Verse 8, ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. And it's not enough just to say it. This is what they do. They put action here into the picture. They say, bring an offering. And you're probably thinking that this is the psalmist's way of saying bring an animal to sacrifice or maybe bring your first fruits to the table or bring your tithe into the storehouse. But it's deeper than that. It includes that, but it's deeper than that. What he's saying is you're the offering. Bring in this offering and lay yourself down at the foot of the master, at the feet of the king as a subject who does and listens to whatever he says. Bring an offering and come into his courts because he's the king. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. And tremble before him all the earth. These two verses that the psalmist paints in Psalm 96 teach us what it looks like to worship God with an undivided heart. What you do is you soak in the glory of God, who he is, what he's done, and then you wring that glory back out on him. Let me give you a picture of this. If you were to have a sponge, and I almost brought one with me today, I just forgot. Okay, so if you had a sponge and you had a bucket full of water, all right, you were to dip that sponge over and over in that bucket of water and you put, picked it up and then you wrung it out, right? So you, you're filling it with water and then you're wringing that water back out to it. That's what worship looks like. You sit in the presence of God, you sit at his feet, you learn who he is and his character and how he acts and how he responds and, and just who he is. You learn all about his attributes, all about his character, and you see that in practice. And you're just sitting in it and you're soaking it up. And then all of a sudden when you come to church on Sunday morning, you're just wringing it back out. And you're giving him all the glory that he's due, all the glory that he's worth. But here's the beauty of how this works. If you were to sit in the, in the goodness and the greatness of God all week long, right, and you're sitting there in it. And you're soaking up his glory. You're soaking up his goodness. You're soaking up his greatness. Guess what happens on Sunday morning when you come and you sing about his worth and you pray about his worth and you declare his worth as brothers and sisters in Christ to each other? This is what that looks like, okay? You came here today and you watched the redemptive work of Christ in Amber Sanderlin. And you saw that, that the God who saved is still saving. And that encourages your heart because you know men and women maybe in your life who need to be saved, 
who you are hoping and praying that the redemptive work of God will enter their life. And you can look at this picture and say, there's still hope for me. There's still hope for them. If God still saves today, then that means he's still in the business of doing his work, and there's hope for my family member or my friend who I want to get saved too. So you're filling up on the glory of God, the goodness of God, the greatness of God, because you see that he still redeems. And then you hear, hey, we had Camp 323 this week. A lot of you were at Camp 323. How many of you are there serving or as, wave your hand like, give me something. Come on. Yes, let me know that you're there. All right, listen. Let me be honest about Camp 323, okay? Let me be honest about it. If all we did was come here to entertain a group of kids, and our goal was to keep kids off the street or to keep kids off drugs or whatever the case may be, okay? Um, If that was our entire goal, we could do that. We could do that. It would flat out be exhausting to you, though. It would exhaust you to death. I mean, listen, this is what happens during camp. Parents, before camp ever start, they have to go to Michael's, they have to go to Hobby Lobby, and if it's on Sunday, they're closed. They have to go to Walmart, or they have to go to Party City, or they have to go to some place like that. They have to get certain bandanas and certain beads and certain paints. Some paints work on the face. Other paints don't work on the face. Some paints work on the body, and they come off easy. Other paints don't come off so easy. So you have to pick through the paints and learn all about paints so that your child can be painted the color that they want, okay? And you have to go through all of this madness. You have to take home T-shirts, and you have to buy letters, and you have to iron on the letters on the T-shirts. Like, all of that happens in the family's homes before the kids get to camp. So the, the moms and dads, they're already exhausted, and camp hasn't even started, all right? And then they send old Johnny to camp, and he's here, he's wearing his blue, his red, his green, his yellow, or whatever colors they have, and he's on his team, and he is screaming all week long. So the 400 people who sacrificed their lives to come and serve at Camp 323 had to literally listen to screaming children all day long. And by the end of Monday, you wonder why they're popping ibuprofen left and right because their head is hurting and and pounding. That's what happens. All right, so you're listening to these screaming kids, right? And then let's just be honest. These kids are war flat out. I mean, they're on a football field outside playing games, and they're playing kickball, then they're running through obstacle courses. They're doing all these activities, and they're flat out tired. What happens when kids get tired? Yes, they get cranky. They, They don't even get cranky. They get flat out rebellious. I mean, I've seen some of your kids, right? Like, they're, they're, they're nightmares. I'm sorry, Mom. I'm sorry, Dad. You have to go home with that. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Um, but, but seriously, you see what happens? And by Friday, everyone is just weary. They're depleted. They're exhausted. But you know what? When you hear that 41 children made an authentic decision to follow Jesus as their Lord and Savior, yeah, It makes every blood, sweat, and tear worth it, doesn't it? See, because we didn't come Monday through Friday just to entertain these kids. They were entertained. There was a lot of creativity. I saw some of it, and I was overwhelmed. But at the end of the day, what it's about is not how many volunteers showed up, though we are so appreciative of you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, because 41 children doesn't come to Jesus without you. And we aren't just celebrating that 700 or 800 or 900, whatever it was, kids that came to camp. The reason we do this is because we know that God is still in the business of saving. And when we see him work and save, 95 decisions were made, but 41 of those we know talked to an adult, made an authentic decision to follow Jesus. But here's the truth, church. The work is not complete. We are not in the business of making converts. We're in the business of making disciples. This is the beginning. Now we have to go after those 41, try to 
get them in the context of a community of believers, a church where they can grow in their faith and godliness, and we hope and we pray that one day they'll start making disciples of their own lives as well. That's the goal that we're after, and that's what we celebrate. We do this because that's the end, and we ascribe glory to him when we do it. So here's what happens. We sit in that Monday through Friday. We sit in that on Sunday morning, and guess what happens when we leave? We take our sponge that's full of the greatness and the glory of God, and we go to our neighborhoods, we go to our workplaces, we go to our community, we go to Savannah, we go to wherever we're headed. And what happens? Does, does it drip any of that greatness and glory and goodness out? Yes. You ever had a sponge that's full of water? It drips it everywhere you go. And all week long, when you go to Macon Street Tacos, and when you go to Chick-fil-A, Chick-fil-A don't need it, everybody's a believer at Chick-fil-A, but when you go to Zaxby's, because they're the enemy, right? That's where you go. Wherever you go, all week long, you're just oozing and dripping the goodness and the greatness and the glory of God because you came here Sunday, and you're filled up with it. But there's moments where you go out there, and you find out, you know what, this person in my neighborhood, his husband left her. His husband just walked out the door, left the kids, left the white. And they need to, you need to ring some goodness and greatness of God out on them. And then you come to another person, you find out, man, their financial situation is flipped upside down. They are stressed to the max. They don't know how they're going to pay their bills. You're going to ring some of the goodness and glory out on them. You follow what happens? You're full of the glory and goodness and greatness of God. So everywhere you go, you have something to share. You have something to share. The problem is a lot of us are running on empty and we're not sharing anything because our, our, our sponge isn't full. Our lives aren't full. And that's what it looks like in Psalm 96. That's what it looks like when we are authentically worshiping Jesus. We're taking it in and then we're giving it back, not only to God, but we're giving it back to others as well. And this kind of attitude, this mindset, it should dominate our thinking. It should dominate our lives. The more you know about God and the more you learn about him, the more value and worth you know that there is to give back to him. And get this, the God that you and I serve, he is an infinite God. We will spend the rest of our lives learning new things about him that we did not know. And that means that if we're learning new things for the rest of our lives about the goodness and the greatness of God, then we will always have something to give. Because infinite Infinite wisdom and infinite might and infinite everything else, omnip omnipotence, omniscience, all of that, it never runs dry. It's a limitless supply. And the more we get, the more we have to give. So honoring God means ascribing glory to him. But there's a second thing. Honoring God is enjoying him. It's not just that we ascribe glory to him, but we actually enjoy him in the process. Let me remind you of something that we talked about just a moment ago. You are the redeemed. If you have placed your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ and you recognize that all of your sin was exchanged for all of his righteousness on the cross of Calvary, you are the redeemed. You are a child of the living God. You are a son, a daughter of the most High king, and everything that belongs to him belongs to you as a son, as a child of his. That's the, that's the gospel. And we honor him when we express our joy in being his child. We express our joy in being the redeemed. I didn't say express our joy in our circumstance. I didn't even say express our joy in our situation. We express our joy in whose we are. We belong to God. C.S. Lewis said it like this, it's not only permissible to enjoy God in worship, it is absolutely essential if I'm going to truly honor him. 
If we want to honor God, it is absolutely essential that we enjoy the God that we're honoring, the God that we're in intimate relationship with. We have to understand that enjoyment overflows in praise. You don't contain it. It it just overflows in praise. As we enjoy God, we inevitably begin praising him. That's how it works. This is what we must sit in. You you remember, it reminds me of the problem of the Romans in Romans chapter 1. Many of you are familiar with that text of scripture. This is where men that knew God have decided in their hearts uh, not to worship God. And because they weren't worshiping him, they were chasing the fleeting pleasures of the world. We know in Romans 1 that God says, I turned them over to their sin. He gave them to it. And you might be thinking, well, that was pretty cruel. No, it wasn't. It was man, woman's choice to rebel. And based on our rebellion, he he let us go. And that's what he's saying. Not, Not we didn't lose our salvation. He just led us to our rebellion. That's what he's telling us here. It says this in Romans 121. For although they knew God, these were men and women of faith. These were brothers and sisters in Christ. They did not worship him as God. Why would they not worship him as God? Go over to Romans 121. I didn't plan on doing this, but I'm going to. Romans 121. This is what it says. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. What does that mean? They forgot who God is, his character, and what God has done in their redemption, that he's bought them back, that they are now sons and daughters of the king, and what happens as a result of that? It says, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. When you forget who God is, and when we forget what God has done in the redemptive work that he's done for our lives, The inevitable result is we start living wasted lives. We start having wasted thinking, and our hearts become darkened to the truths of God's word. This is the danger for me and you this summer. Let us not forget who God is. Let us continue to reflect in that reality and and just focus on his character. But also let us not forget what God has done in saving us from eternity apart from him. And let that boil over into a season of worship. That's what you were created for. You're designed by God to worship. You get the most joy in your life when you you do what you're created to do. So let us worship him the way that we were designed. So authentic worship begins with a proper view of God. And then the second thing and final thing I want you to see this morning is this. Authentic worship requires a proper view of self. Requires a proper view of God but it also requires a proper view of self. Jump over to Luke chapter 18. Two Gospels later, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke chapter 18. Jesus is telling a story of a Pharisee and a tax collector, okay? Both a Pharisee and a tax collector, they go to the temple to pray. We already talked about who the Pharisees are. Very religious group of people, knew all the scriptures, legalistic in their ways. That's who the Pharisees are, okay? Thought they were righteous, whatever the case may be. But let's talk about the tax collectors. All right, how many of you celebrate, if we did it in America like this, how many of you would celebrate if someone knocked on your house once a year, once a quarter, whatever the case may be, coming to collect your taxes? Right, right, right. When you learn when they're going to come, you're not going to be home, right? Like, that's what we would do. Like, nobody even there 
kind of anticipate, they, they didn't enjoy this. Tax collectors were not people that everybody just loved to hang around, okay? So you need to know that about them. But you got this tax collector who the whole society kind of uh, despised. And then you have this group of Pharisees who, you know, were the religious juggernauts, right? But this is what Jesus says in verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, they were both praying, standing by himself, prayed like this. God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I mean, I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. You know, the first thing that I do when I read that is I shake my head in disbelief, like how can the Pharisee become so low? But when I start to marinate in this a little bit, I start to realize, Trey, there's a lot of that Pharisee in you. And maybe you recognize that too. I mean, how quick we are to offer to God prayers just like this Pharisee. And we don't do it just like him. I mean, but what he's saying is I'm righteous. What he's saying is, man, I'm not like those other people. And based on the fact that he's not like those other people, he feels like he, he measures up. And sometimes in my life and in your life, we feel like we measure up, don't we? And the reason we feel like we measure up is, we, is because we're comparing ourselves to all the wrong people. The reason I'm a good neighbor is because we have a bad neighbor. And when I compare myself to that guy, man, I'm a good neighbor. The reason I'm a good Christian man is because I do what good Christian men do. And I'm separating myself from someone who's not a good Christian man. That means maybe I read my Bible and he doesn't. Or I'm faithful to church and he's not. Or I lead Bible studies and he doesn't. Or I lead a life group and he don't. So I, I'm, I'm measuring myself by someone else. And that's exactly what the Pharisee was doing. But listen. The men and women around you, they're not the standard. Your life was never called to emulate them. Your life was called to emulate Christ. And as long as you try to emulate Christ, the tax collector becomes a picture for what we should be praying. It says this in verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat on his chest, his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me a sinner be merciful to me a sinner and it says in verse 14 Jesus talks I tell you this man went down to his house justified rather than the other why because this man was aware completely aware of who he really is when he compared himself to the holiness of God he recognized he was unfit for the kingdom he recognized, I have nothing else fit for a king but a hallelujah, a forgive me. Here I am, Lord. Take all of me. Church, this is the picture of a heart that's not divided. This is a picture of a heart that knows who he is when he stands before the Lord. He says again, God, be merciful to me. I know what I deserve because of my sin, and I'm asking you to be merciful to me as a sinner. Let me say it like this, church. Authentic worship has less to do with the posture of our body and more to do with the posture of our heart. Some of us, we can pretend all day long. We can lift our hands, get on our knees. We can shed tears of grievance or whatever the case may be. And we can fool everybody in America and everybody in this church that we are worshiping Jesus. And the only one who really matters is the actual one who really knows. If that worship is authentic... And if it's not in vain, look back at what he says. He says, this people, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they 
worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He says, they come to church on Sunday morning or go to the tabernacle on Sunday morning. And man, I see them. They sing. And some of them sing loud. Some of them kind of murmur, move their lips because they don't want to be heard. They sing. But their hearts are so far from me. Their hearts are not nearby. What does this teach us? It teaches us that worship is more than obedience. It includes obedience. But it's more than obedience. The implication that Jesus is making is that we can think we are worshiping by simply obeying biblical commands. So we can obey and not worship. That's what it's teaching us. The primary Hebrew word here, actually, for worship means to bow down. That is a posture. But what's, what he's shooting for there is the posture of my heart is what leads and motivates the posture of my body. So we have to get that right this summer. We have to know that when we become authentic worshipers, our heart being right with God first is what motivates us to worship with the posture of our body. And worship, what we have to understand is that the internal will always precede the external. You hear that? Y'all know this from 1 Samuel. What did they say about David? You know, God doesn't look at the outward appearance of man. He looks at the heart. God knows the heart. We have to understand this. So the internal precedes the external. And let me end like this. I want to paint this picture for you. How many of you know the difference between internal appreciation and external expectation? Anybody? Well, you're about to learn, okay? What is internal appreciation? How many of you have ever been to a high school like pageant or talent show? A lot of us? Any of us? None of us. Some of us. Okay. You go to a high school talent show, and there's always one. All right, there's always one. You go, you sit in the auditorium, you're just taking in all these different talents. And this girl, she steps up on the stage. And man, she sings with this angelic voice. I mean, the moment she opens her mouth, every ear in the audience is locked into her voice. It is angelic. It is amazing. It is beautiful. And she starts singing this like Whitney Houston song, and she's not missing a note. She's singing in key, and all of a sudden, like, you have chills running up your arm, and your arm hairs are starting to stand up like and celebrate, right? Like, that's what happens. You're just taking in this moment. And the whole room is quiet as she sings. And the moment she concludes her song, what happens? Y'all forgot last week. Y'all done forgot last week. That's what happens. No, that's not what happens. What happens? Yes, yes. You hear shouts, you hear applause, you hear whistles. I mean, because people internally appreciated what they were taking in. And as they sat there and locked into it and engaged it, and it just kind of melted into their soul, when she was done, they just erupted in applause. They erupted in praise and adulation. That's internal appreciation. External expectation is after she leaves the stage and the next contestant comes, this next contestant, she tries to do her best rendition of Taylor Swift, right? She don't look like Taylor. She don't sing like Taylor. And she certainly don't dance like Taylor, okay? And you're thinking in your seat, this is awful. Like this girl, I don't even know how she got in the pageant. I mean, honestly, that's what you're thinking. But at the end of her performance, I know that's harsh and cruel, but it's true. You all know People like that. So you, you get there, and at the end of her performance, guess what they do? Woo! Her parents do the woos, right? 
and her, her little friends, um, but everybody else just d- does what's expected. We're not going to be rude. We're not going to be cruel. We're just going to show our respect. She did a great job. She got up here and she tried, right? That's what we did. And we did what was expected. We showed our respect. When you come to worship God, you don't worship with external expectation. It's just what we do. I go to church. I'm supposed to sing. I'm supposed to clap at a certain time. I'm supposed to say hallelujah if someone gets baptized. And I just do what's expected to show my respects. No, we come to worship God with internal appreciation. We see who God is, and we encounter what God has done, and we can't get over it. And the longer our soul marinates in that reality, when we get in here, we can't help but burst forth with praise. And when we get out there, we can't help but burst forth in praise. And the whole world starts to benefit from men and women, boys and girls, who internally appreciate the work that God has done in their lives. If this is going to be the best summer yet, it begins when our hearts are so focused and so set on Jesus that nothing in this world will divide that from us. Ma'am, sir, young person, listen. Be careful of the things that are competing for the throne of your heart. Girlfriends, boyfriends, hobbies, sports, jobs, careers, the desire to climb the corporate ladder, the desire to have more investment properties, the desires are there, but beware that those things can easily, they're not bad things, but those things can easily compete with the time and the attention and the worth that only Jesus deserves. Church, I pray that this summer will be your best summer yet, and I pray that we'll learn to internally appreciate the work that God has done, not only for us, but as us in our place on the cross of Calvary to pay for all of our sins.